Good afternoon and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine's Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. So today, our show is about marine and freshwater ecosystems. And specifically, we're talking about the ecological connections that occur where salt and freshwater meet, where fish, marine mammals, birds, and even water itself moves through rivers and streams and into the ocean. We'll be learning about cool research projects underway in these systems and focus a bit on new research methods like environmental DNA, as well as existing research methods such as hook and line fishing to understand the species that inhabit these zones. We'll also talk about human knowledge about water that gets handed down through generations and helps inform how to protect estuaries and fish. I'm excited to hear from our four guests today who will help us understand why we should care about these research and education programs that occur at the intersection of marine and freshwater estuaries. Our geographic scope today spans the Downeast region from the Penobscot River all the way down to Passamaquoddy Bay. So let me tell you a little bit about our guests. We'll hear from Michelle DeLeon, a master's student in ecology and environmental sciences at the University of Maine, and also a participant in a National Science Foundation research traineeship on enhancing conservation science. We'll be talking with Chris Bartlett, a Marine Extension Associate with Maine Sea Grant and Cooperative Extension based in Eastport, Maine, where he's been working on all kinds of projects at the intersection of fresh and salt water for a long time. We'll talk with Justin Stevens, who heads up the Sea Run Fish Ecosystem Project, a partnership between Maine Sea Grant and NOAA Fisheries. And our fourth guest today is Julia Sonneborg, a UMaine PhD student in marine biology working with the Maine eDNA, that's Environmental DNA Program, using this cutting-edge research technology to assess shifts in coastal community structure and biodiversity throughout coastal Maine. A quick note to our listeners that we won't be taking any calls today because our show was pre-recorded on June 7th, 2021. So with that, I think we ought to get started. Let's start by asking Michelle DeLeon to give us an overview of her work in Western Passage, which is in Passamaquoddy Bay, straddling the border between Maine and New Brunswick, Canada. Take it away, Michelle. Hi, thank you for having us all today. I'm really excited to be here and talk about ecological connections and some of the new research methods that I'm trying today. So as you mentioned, um, I'm a graduate student and my research is focused on partnership building for conservation efforts and especially how university community partnerships can enhance the resilience of communities and the environment. And so for my research, I'm exploring some linkages between community resilience and community development 
And I'm also partnering with the Passamaquoddy Tribe to support their storytelling effort. And also along with Chris Bartlett doing um, some fishery survey work in Western Passage and also hoping to support the marine fisheries citizen science programs in Maine. Thank you so much, Michelle. I'm excited to hear more about your work. Um, and since you mentioned Chris Bartlett, um, let's have Chris Bartlett introduce himself and go ahead and tell us a little bit about your work. So Chris Bartlett is with the University of Maine Sea Grant and Cooperative Extension based in Eastport. Hi, Natalie. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's nice to be with you all. As, as you mentioned, uh, my office is in Eastport and my work focuses on uh, research and outreach projects around our commercial fisheries and commercial aquaculture. I also uh, serve as a logistical support person for the university and other efforts. For instance, I've recently been helping with some tidal power research in our area. Uh, so to give you a, a scope of some of the work that I've been up to this spring, I've been helping with monitoring efforts around alewife populations in the Downeast area. So there are three rivers in my, my area where communities are either harvesting those fish or would like to harvest the fish. And so helping them uh, and the state to collect information about those populations to make sure that harvest can be sustainable. Great, great, thank you. Um, let's go next with Justin, who is also with the University of Maine Sea Grant Program. And Justin leads the Sea Run Fish Ecosystem Project in partnership with NOAA Fisheries. So give us an overview of your work, Justin. Yeah, thanks, Natalie. And thanks for having me on the show here. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so my work, uh, like you mentioned, is a partnership with uh, NOAA Fisheries. And it's really related to um, a pretty big, big program across the state that involves um, state, federal agencies, uh, tribal partners, nonprofits that are all working in the realm of uh, sea run fish. So fish that um, have part of their life cycle that requires uh, the marine environment, the ocean, and part of their life cycle that requires fresh water. Um, so the focus of my research component of, of the program is monitoring the Penobscot River estuary. And that's a long-term monitoring project uh, that's been going on for um, 10 years. And that project has really uh, tried to assess the impacts of upriver um, restoration, like taking out dams and restoring sea run fish populations and the impacts that happen at this interface between the marine and freshwater um, uh, habitats. So um, I lead a survey that, that um, uses a couple different methods to assess, um, you know, the ecosystem down there. And, um, and like I said, it's a, it's a long-term monitoring program uh, in the state to, to hopefully inform future dam removals and, uh, and, and restoration projects. Great, thank you so much, Justin. And the final guest in uh, on the show with us today, Julia Sonneborg is a U University of Maine PhD student in marine biology, working with the Maine eDNA program to assess shifts in coastal community structure and biodiversity. So Julia, tell us a little bit about your work. Absolutely, and thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. Um, as you mentioned, I work in the environmental DNA program here at the University of Maine, and I am particularly focused on applying that new method to restoration ecology for alewives, as has been mentioned, uh, as a big fish species here in Maine, and also for seals. 
Um, so as mentioned, alewives are really important fish species. Uh, they migrate up the river systems, spending part of their life cycle in the ocean and part um, in the freshwater systems to spawn. And so part of my research is using environmental DNA to look at how communities are shifting over the course of these migrations. So environmental DNA is just the genetic material that we can find in the environment from the animals that live in the water. And we can isolate that DNA from the water and analyze it for all sorts of things. So you can look at all the different types of fish that might be in the water or look at, you know, can we see how many alewife might be in the water at a given period of time? And it's a very new method. Um, so a lot of what I do is trying to fit the method to our needs and see the, how far we can push it, what we can use it for, kind of looking at its limitations and just kind of setting it up to be used uh, for a lot of the different applications that it has across the state. Great, thank you so much, Julia. Um, I have so much, so many questions for all of you. Um, and so I'm excited for this conversation today. I was wondering, Justin, if you could help us kind of frame what we're about today, sort of what our larger themes are. Um, you know, we're talking about marine and freshwater ecosystems and all of you work kind of at the intersection of those two systems. And I was wondering if you could help lay the groundwork on how these two ecological systems are connected. I mean, obviously they're connected by rivers and streams that flow out into the ocean, but I think you could get a lot more in depth than I could in terms of helping us understand sort of the, the foods, you know, the food web systems and how they're connected across the fresh and salt water. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a stab, Natalie. Um, so, you know, I think a big picture and a way to frame this um, uh, in the East Coast United States we, we have some ground to make up because our systems here um, have been impacted for much, much longer. So uh, in the Northeast, we're looking at, you know, freshwater systems that have had, you know, hundreds of years of manipulation. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's meaning that fish populations have, have um, you know, been, been declined over uh, the last couple hundred years. We have, you know, dams that have been around for a couple hundred years, and um, it, it may be more useful to look out to the West Coast where the impacts haven't been around for so long, and the, 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 the fisheries community um, just has a bet, much better sense of the function that fish um, provide for freshwater ecosystems when they come from the ocean into the freshwater. So I think a lot more people even in Maine are familiar with Pacific salmon that, that still make these mass migrations from the ocean into uh, coastal rivers and streams and, and make it you know hundreds of miles inland um, and then die so that their, their carcasses and um, you know are, are integrated into um, you know, the, uh, the, the freshwater ecosystems just very directly. They, they, you can walk around and see dead salmon carcasses. The bears feed on the salmon, um, you know, uh, eagles and things. It's a much more visible process and connection. And unfortunately on the East Coast, it's very much, um, uh, it, it's much more subtle. It's not as well visible. And it's also a little more abstract because we just don't have the millions of fish inhabiting our rivers um, like we did four or 500 years ago. Uh, so what, 
we really, you know, have been trying to do both in research, management, and communication around this area is to start and point to point to places where people might have a better sense of what's going on. Um, but to be really specific, here in Maine, you know, we're on the East Coast, United States, um, and basically, one after the the glaciers, um, you know, scraped off all of the soils. And, and the forests, you know, began to repopulate, we had a pretty nutrient starved um, uh, freshwater and inland um, habitat for things to live in. And um, as fish species, because they had, you know, uh, a perfect connection between freshwater and marine habitats, were able to come back into freshwater from the ocean and populate uh, our rivers and streams, that provided nutrients to to our, our ecosystems. When dams were built and effectively blocked fish passage in many of our biggest rivers, especially, um, the fish populations just disappeared. So that now we're in a, a place where most sea run fish, like Elwives, um, are, are concentrated on small coastal streams that had a lesser impact. If there were dams, they were small, and, and maybe there was some passage that allowed you know, some populations to, um, to persist. But um, we're at a, such a small scale in terms of population that it's hard to get a sense of these big ecological changes. So when the, in Maine, back it started in the, in the late 90s, there was some large scale dam removals proposed first on the Kennebec and then on the Penobscot. And the, 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 this process is gonna continue um, likely for the next uh, you know, 10 years or so moving into some of these bigger rivers. And we're starting to see populations of sea run fish increase. So the question started to become, you know, were those ecological um, connections that were there in the past, would they be, um, re would the reconnection of the river and the ocean, would those ecological connections be reestablished? So we're very much in a, you know, a, a, a large experiment <laughs> <laughs> that's at a statewide or Gulf of Maine basin um, scale uh, size to see whether or not um, if, if sea run fish species like elwives and blueback herring uh, rebound, whether we might see ecological interaction. Thank you, Justin. That, that's really helpful to have the big picture. You mentioned the word sea run fish a couple times. And so those are the species that spend part of their life cycle at sea and part of their life cycle in the rivers. Um, and so they're like smelt and alewives and eel and salmon and tomcod and what are there, something like 12 or 13 different species of sea run fish here on the coast of Maine. Um, and so I've heard, um, I've heard a, a really great phrase that referred to sea run fish as the nutrient conveyor belt. Um, and that it's the sea run fish that sort of helps cycle nutrients through the freshwater and saltwater ecosystem sort of back and forth. And that, that really kind of helped me understand the importance of, of their link to this region. Um, I want to turn to Chris a little bit because um, so Justin talked about sort of this long term 10 year sort of project. Um, and then there's also this annual migration of the sea run fish that are coming back up to our rivers right now, right? And Chris, I know that you have been, I think all of you, but I'm going to pick on Chris for a minute. I know that you've been spending a whole lot of time in the field working 
in streams, I think, um, counting some of the sea run fish that are coming back, like alewives and other species, help us paint a picture a little bit about what that what that migration, that annual migration looks like. Sure, thanks, Natalie. Well, in, in terms of alewives, which is a, a species of, of herring, um, they're, the adults are coming back to spawn starting as early as three years, but majority of the population is coming back at four years old, up to as, as old as eight years old, to spawn in freshwater ponds and lakes. Uh, and so they're, they're coming into the estuaries, as, as uh, Justin mentioned, and up the rivers and streams to get to those lakes to spawn. And as Justin mentioned, uh, there are impasses to their migration that we as people have caused, dams and such, that they can't get around uh, without fishways uh, that need to be working properly or fish lifts. And one of the projects that I'm working on is in the town of Pembroke. Uh, the town of Pembroke would like to harvest the alewife population that's coming back to spawn. They did for many years and then uh, it was unclear as to whether there was a sustainable population uh, coming back to spawn. So the harvests have been curtailed and myself with the University of Maine and other nonprofits and uh, community uh, citizens and, and municipal partners have been monitoring the population in the Penamaquan River in Pembroke. Uh, and as you mentioned, by counting the fish, so we actually have an electronic resistive counter that the fish swim through and can give us an estimate of how many fish are going upstream. We also take biological samples uh, to find out the, the sex ratio, the, the number of males to females, to see that that's a, a, as close to equal as possible. That shows a healthy population. Uh, we also collect scales from the fish because that can give us uh, each fish's age. So we like to see a, a good distribution of ages in the returning fish from you know four to eight years old, if we can, three to eight. And so that's all helpful to let us know that uh, the population is healthy and can uh, have a sustainable harvest. And so we're collecting that information for 10 years. Uh, and right now we're in year eight of collecting that information. So a couple more years, and then the State Department of Marine Resources uh, will determine if the, the town can uh, be authorized to harvest those fish again. If you're just tuning in today, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. We're talking today about sea run fish and the fresh and saltwater ecosystems that these species travel through on their annual migrations. You were just hearing from Chris Bartlett from Maine Sea Grant and the University of Maine Cooperative Extension talking about his work down near the Canadian border. And before Chris, you heard from Justin Stevens, who coordinates a sea run fish project on the Penobscot River. We're also talking today with two University of Maine graduate students, Julia Sonneborg and Michelle DeLeon. A reminder that we're not taking any calls today because our show was pre-recorded. Now, let's get back to Chris Bartlett. One of the things that we found when we started this is that the mechanisms that we had put in place as a state to allow the fish to get up over the dams wasn't working. So one of the fishways uh, uh, had deteriorated and the fish couldn't get past it. And so here's a, you know, a part of a facility that should be helping the fish and it really was curtailing their, their migration. 
So through uh, volunteer efforts, we would patch that up every year. And just last year with funding that uh, the Downey Salmon Federation and the Passamaquoddy tribe received, a new fishway replaced the old fishway. And this year the fish are migrating uh, so much easier than they had in the past. And so through our efforts of figuring out that there are these impasses, we also found that beaver dams were also blocking the fish's passage. Uh, the population of alewives, our estimates of the number of fish going upstream on the Penamaquan have increased from 70,000 in 2014 to just under 400,000 last year. So our efforts can make a difference, which is it's, it's encouraging to hear. That's so interesting, Chris. Um because we've had uh, in years past, most spring times, we try to do a coastal conversation show focused in some capacity related on sea run fish when, when the runs are happening. And um, it just seems like in the last five, 10 years or so, there's been so much interest up and down the main coast in these local volunteer efforts to bring the alewives back and to hear you share some of your numbers and to sort of, um, I don't know if it's fair to say this, but do you think, those kinds of numbers are maybe multiplying in different parts of the coast. And so the population as a whole, is it safe to assume that maybe it's rising? They absolutely are. Yeah, the number of alewives in the state are, are increasing with all of these efforts. Uh, and on the, the larger rivers, uh, such as the Penobscot, uh, you can really jump up in numbers quickly. Uh, the St. Croix River was, was uh, not the state legislature back in the mid 90s stopped the passage of alewives on the St. Croix and that was lifted several years ago. And the population there has jumped from the low thousands up to the hundreds of thousands in just several years. So it's exciting to see there. And it, that, as you mentioned, is happening through many of these watersheds that are getting attention. Yeah, neat. Um, Michelle, I know that you are working with alewives too, but I think if I understand your research correctly, you're actually trying to get an assessment of the alewife populations in the saltwater. So during the portion of the year where they're not in the rivers, is that correct? So my research is actually going to be broader than that and look specifically in the Western Passage. Right now, the there's not much data available about what fish are present in the Western Passage. The Western Passage is um, in Copscook Bay, right next to Eastport. And I'm really excited to go out there and work with Chris and we'll be sampling for the presence and absence of species there. And um, some of which may be alewives. And um, the, there's not much data available there because of how the Western Passage is highly dynamic. So traditional survey methods don't really work as well there. There had been a pilot study a couple years ago where um, one method of a hook and line worked. And so I'm proposing to add another method using a long line and um, hopefully with this other method being able to target more species and um, help establish a data or help establish a baseline for what fish species are there. Um, and this area is a particular interest because again, there's not really much information there available. And also it's been identified as a site for potential energy development. And so that knowledge on fisheries populations in the area wouldn't be available yet. 
to regulatory um, agencies. So it's exciting to think about how uh, sampling in this area can be useful for a variety of agencies and organizations. That's super interesting. So the energy development potential is tidal energy. Is that correct? Um, can I have ask one of you guys, either Chris or Michelle, to kind of explain the basic gist of tidal energy? I'll leave it to Chris. Sure, Natalie. Thanks. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Western Passage is, as Michelle mentioned, uh, right between Eastport, uh, Maine, and uh, Deer Island, New Brunswick. So we're right on the international boundary, and it's the lower section of the St. Croix River, uh, which would, again, be the boundary between Maine and New Brunswick coming down through the estuary up near Callis, Maine, and St. Stephen, New Brunswick. And it's being proposed as a, as a uh, tidal power development site by Ocean Renewable Power Company, and their turbines would be placed uh, on the main side of the border, uh, capturing, we have on average uh, a 20 foot exchange of tide each, each cycle here. So that might be you know, double of what you would see in the mid coast. So it's a high tidal exchange here going through a, a, a constricted area because it's between the two land masses of Eastport and Deer Island. So it's forcing uh, a lot of water back and forth that can be captured for energy. And that water may be moving as quickly as six knots. Uh, so there's a lot of energy there that could be harnessed and the company would like to try that. Um, at the university where we're helping them with and the resource agencies that govern uh, their efforts is to see what can be the potential impacts on the ecosystem uh, in this area. And so one is, will the, a turbine or turbines affect the distribution of fish in the area? In order to figure that out, we first have to figure out what fish are in the area. And so that's what Michelle's work will be doing. Such interesting work. And um, I'm going to switch to, to Justin and Julia. Um, we're, we're really sort of straddling the Downeast region because we're talking we're a bunch about the Passamaquoddy, Copscook Bay area. And also, um, Justin at least does a lot of work in the Penobscot Bay area, which I think Julia is going to start doing as well. So, um, uh, Julia, let's let's turn to you a little bit um, because I want to hear a little bit more about your use of eDNA, the new technology and the new research um, method of eDNA. And I will be totally honest with you that when I started reading your uh, research summary, I, I was totally new to eDNA. Um, and so I'm still trying to wrap my brain around what it is. And I think that I'm understanding that when species swim through the water column, they leave sort of DNA traces of themselves and that you are able to take some water samples and go back to the lab and identify who those traces were. Is that, is that reasonably accurate? Tell us about it. Yes, that is a great description of it. It's exactly what you said, whether that's, you know, leaving behind skin cells or scales or fecal material or gametes behind in the water. All these cells are containing DNA from the organism that left them, left them in the water. And so they have really been big advancements in molecular biology in recent years that have allowed us to kind of take that DNA and isolate from the water. Um, personally, we filter the water um, and then we can extract the DNA from filters. And then you can do all sorts of things. So some people, myself included, will sequence the DNA. Um, and then I will allow you to say, oh, this is from an alewife, or oh, this is from a cod or a tuna. 
Um, that can allow you to say, oh, this species is therefore you can infer that that was that fish lives in that water to some extent. This is incredible to me. Is this as incredible as it sounds to me where, uh, you know, Michelle and, and Chris are talking about actually like fishing using hook and line to get the fish in order to identify that the fish lives there. Um, but I think I'm hearing you say that eDNA, you don't need the actual fish. You just need a water sample that enables you to figure out what swam through there. It's amazing. Yes, that's one of the perks is there are a lot of species that are, you know, that might be really hard to identify in the field or they manage to escape your nets every single time or they just live in hard to reach places. And if you can get a water sample, you might be able to reach them a little bit better or just a little bit easier and cheaper than you might otherwise have with more traditional methods. But it's definitely really useful to kind of add to your arsenal of methods. So using a regular fishing pole or hook and line, different things, it's good to kind of supplement those things. I don't know, it's not always ready to stand on its own quite yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I also think that Julia's work with eDNA is just wonderful. And having uh, been researching fish in the Cobscook Bay area, for instance, for years, uh, oftentimes we're limited on what we gain for information on the fishes based on our techniques. And so for instance, uh, I assisted with, with one uh, research project where we were trying to establish presence and abundance of fish in this area using a trawl net, which is a, a bag type net that's towed behind a boat and fike nets, which are funnel type nets that are put in the intertidal zone. So when the tide is out, you can go and tend the net and find out what you caught. And then we shared that information with, with, lo with local people to see if we were collecting fish that they would expect to see in those areas, which I'd like to talk about in a bit as well. Um, what we found was a glaring absence of some fish species that couldn't be caught by those methods. So for instance, they, they said, well, this is all great. We didn't know, for instance, some of these species, like we didn't even know there were sticklebacks in the area, which are small fish in the, in, often in the estuary that aren't targeted commercially. And so people may not know what they are. Uh, and we found a hundred haddock, which people hadn't seen haddock in this area for, you know, a decade or more. But we missed, for instance, Atlantic mackerel and Atlantic herring, which are abundant in the summer months. But our fishing techniques uh, didn't capture them because they could outrun the nets when they were being towed by the boat or they weren't in the intertidal zone being caught by the, the fike nets. So Julia's work can establish, yes, there are Atlantic mackerel and Atlantic herring in the area, uh, just as we've been told even if we can't catch them. So as she mentions, it's another tool in our arsenal. I just think is it, I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting to hear about these methods. Justin, tell us a little bit about some of the research methods that you've been using in the Penobscot, especially um, in the last you know several years as we're looking at the changes in the Penobscot after the dams have come down and maybe you can help set that context for us. Yeah, thanks, Natalie. And and it follows really well with the conversation about Cobscook because um, it's it's just inherently difficult to work in estuaries um, in Maine, particular because we've got these tidal fluctuations. So if you're trying to do traditional like net based sampling, you you know are often can um, run into problems with just the velocity of the water and being able to to do anything safely. So um, the other thing that it was difficult in the Penobscot, we were 
we knew that dams are going to come out and populations upriver were going to be um, impacted, but we no one really knew what the impacts were going to be in the estuary and 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 you know combine the difficulties with sampling there we talked to a bunch of people that are trying across the globe to to look at some of these questions and you know the traditional sampling techniques either cost a lot of money in terms of you know um, needing a lot of people to to make them work um, or they're just they're just impossible to use so we worked with the northeast fishery science center to scale down um, an acoustic uh, methodology. So this is using scientific echo sounders, which are basically just really finely tuned fish finders, but have the ability um, to measure the quantity of stuff that's in the water. And um, so the, the setup that we had was the same that's on the large oceanographic um, survey vessels from NOAA. We scaled it down to a skiff that we could reliably use in the estuary and have used that as a sampling platform um, for you know, the duration of the survey. So basically what we can do with that is you, know, you take a measure with, um, with these sound waves and, and get a quantity of things that are in the water. Um, much like what um, you know, Julia has talked about, the, you know, getting a lot of information on, on um, a specific area is really useful. The shortcomings like with acoustics is that you don't know exactly what your, tar your targets are on your fish finder. You know that you have a pretty good idea they're fish um, because of the shape and the way that they, the properties that they give you um, in, in the analyses, but getting down to species is very difficult. So we, we, uh, when I was at uh, uh, NOAA Fisheries, they had the capacity to run a small boat to trawl. And um, we did it a number, a number of times over different seasons and different conditions um, to, to address what Chris was talking about, kind of that bias and to try to figure out, you know, how well our acoustic methods matched up with our trawling methods. Um, and, and, and lo and behold, um, that uh, theme of surprises uh, found us as well, because we thought, well, in the spring, there'll be adult elwives and, um, you know, we'll wait. And in the fall, the juveniles will come down from the river and they'll be, you know, all over the place in the estuary. And um, the surprise was from the very first tow we made in the estuary with the trawl. Um, what we saw as targets on the acoustic happened to be um, one-year-old river herring. So they were one-year-old elwives, which you read any textbook, it'll tell you those one-year-olds are somewhere out in the ocean, <laughs> not up in the tidal uh, portions of the estuary. So we immediately had to reset our way of thinking about the dynamics of, you know, sea run fish and, you know, where, what life stage would be when. Um, we had a framework to go by because, you know, the books publish where you know, things are supposed to be, but we really had to be, have an open mind about what, um, you know, what might be there. So that's, that's just carried on, um, you know, for as long as I've, I've done it, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I'm always expecting a surprise that some, you know, species will show up and given, you know, the vulnerability and, and, and climate and different conditions over different seasons, you know, 
I think we've had the, the wettest year in 50, the hottest year in 50 and the coldest year in 50, you know, in the last, you know, six years or something. And um, that, you know, that changes distributions of, of species. So one year that may mean we had a, a huge run of um, long thin squid that came up into the estuary. And, you know, another year, you know, it was uh, Atlantic Menhaden. So, you know, it, we're also, you're also, if you do this over a certain amount of uh, long time period, you're also going to expect to see some of this variability that just occurs with, you know, species distribution. So it's a lot of moving parts, um, but these mix of traditional and kind of cutting edge um, research technologies are really giving us the ability to look at things that, frankly, you know, just really haven't been investigated at these time and space scales. So it's, it's an exciting time to be be part of it. Yeah, it sounds like it um, because it seems like it's a combination of we're in a time when our ecosystems are changing. We know that. We know that, you know, our water is warming. We know that our climate is shifting. Um, and so it sounds like the methods are having to evolve in order to be able to document the changes that are that are happening. Um, and I, I want to turn a little bit to to Michelle and Julia as the as the students. Um, you guys are are graduate students in your programs, and you know, hearing Justin talking, who's who's been in the field for a long time, you know, talking about how it's exciting to to have these emerging um, kinds of methods um, and to combine those with some of the traditional methods. What does that mean for you guys in terms of your studies? What's exciting about this work? I think what just has really caught me, at least during this conversation and in past conversations, you know, I come in this on the EDNA side of things and I'm learning so much about this like very brand new method and the things that it can do. We also kind of equally learn about the things that it can't do. So here, Justin talk about seeing one-year-old fish where you didn't expect them. And Chris mentioned looking at um, sex ratios and kind of age class distributions and EDNA can't tell us that information. And so I think one of the most interesting things for me is kind of learning all the different ways to get the information that you need and all the different kinds of methods that you kind of have to combine to get the full picture, which I think is really important in so much of what we communicate about between scientists and the gaps that every single method has that other methods might be able to help fill. I think that's just really exciting to me, learning about everything that everyone does and the different ways you can approach this, these really, really big research questions. Yeah, that's great, Julia. Um, and I just wanna echo how exciting it is to combine different methods. And um, that's exactly what I'm doing in my field work this summer, where I'm taking a method that has been tried in Western Passage and one that hasn't, and trying to explore the limitations of both, and also, of course, the opportunities for listeners who have just tuned in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at weru.org with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. You just heard from Michelle de Leon and right before was Julia Sonneborg. Both are master's and PhD students respectively at the University of Maine researching the ecology of salt and freshwater systems. 
Also on today's show are Justin Stevens and Chris Bartlett, who, in addition to being my esteemed colleagues at Maine Sea Grant, have both long been working on sea-run fish restoration and research projects. In our final segment today, we explore the importance of knowledge held by people who may not be trained as scientists in the academic sense of the term. This type of knowledge is sometimes called local ecological knowledge or traditional knowledge and is held by folks who have a lot of insights about a place either because they've lived here for a long time or they've fished here for a long time or they have knowledge that's passed down through the generations like members of Maine's tribal communities. I had asked my guests to reflect on how this kind of local knowledge complements or even enhances their ecological research and restoration work. Here is Chris Bartlett again. Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Natalie, and I'm glad we're talking about it. So when we're thinking about ecological interactions, for me, I think about, you know, there's the physical, biological, and social dynamics uh, affecting that ecosystem. And I, I tend to work right in that... Um, that sweet spot between the, the social interactions and the biological and the physical. So we bring a scientific lens. Uh, uh, we have this knowledge and approach uh, that we, we bring to try to answer these societal questions, uh, whether it's about fish stocks or marine mammals or what have you in the ecosystem. Uh, and that's one approach. Uh, I think it's very useful uh, and I've seen it to be very beneficial to have a, a dialogue uh, with people in the area about their local and traditional knowledge of um, the things that we want to be studying. So if we're looking at fish species in a, in a certain geographic area, sitting down with folks that have been either observing or capturing those fish for uh, up to generations to tell us about their past and present observations is very insightful in not only how we may uh, develop our scientific approach, um, but also in exchanging that information so that uh, it's, it's a two-way street, so that we're both learning from one another. And I really, that's one of the things about my job I enjoy the most. And so for instance, in the, the work that um, we'll be doing with Michelle, we had a, a previous study that was very similar uh, to that, uh, its predecessor, where we sat down with community members and said, this is what we hope to do. We hope to capture fish in this area to determine presence uh, where this tidal power uh, generation study may go. Uh, what can you tell us about fish in that area? And sitting down with nautical charts and having people tell us their stories about capturing fish and seeing marine mammals in that area and putting them uh, on the maps and with the years was just so helpful uh, for us to know uh, what is known about what it is that we wanna study. So I, I really uh, appreciate the local and traditional knowledge that we gain from people in the communities that we're serving. Yeah, um, thank you, Chris. Um, I'm, I'm looking at Julia for a second and thinking about what you were talking about earlier in terms of um, you're using this really incredible new research method to analyze the DNA in, in the environments in which you study, which is just so interesting. But you also talked about the limitations of that. and. Um, of that, and that you can't, it's not going to tell you everything that you want to know about that system. And, and what I'm hearing from Chris really illustrates that, that some pieces of information just come from people's experience. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to hear how, how that might fit into your work or what role that might play. Absolutely. I think 
with most science and with eDNA especially, context is everything. Understanding this system that you're working in is important for the like foundation of the science that you're doing, but also just because you're not doing any of this in a vacuum. And a lot of times with eDNA, you have to be really cognizant of the community that you're affecting with the results that you might be finding. Um, there's a lot of depth when you work with genetic material, being very cognizant of the fact that there are also human DNA in that water and you don't want to go into a community that's been, had a history of exploitation and pull the DNA from the water without thinking about what you're doing. Um, this kind of goes back with indigenous rights. Um, and it's really just important when you work with genetic material to be really aware of what you're doing and just talk to the community that you're working with. People are really interested all the time in what we're sampling. We get asked almost every time we go sampling, what are you guys doing? Um, and so it's really a good way to connect with the community and ask you know, what they wanna learn about the lake they live on or the estuary that they live on and you know what they know about it. Since I'm also not from Maine or even a coast, I'm from the Midwest. So there are so many things that I learn when I'm out sampling and talking to people that I would otherwise never know and that the literature, scientific literature is not going to tell you. So I think it's absolutely super, super important all the time in what I do. How about you, Justin? How does, how does local interactions play out in the work that you've been up to? Yeah, well, I'd echo both of what uh, Chris and Julia said. I mean, our the work in the Penobscot estuary was really um, heavily supported by local fishermen. There was a, a local lobsterman that, um, that that provided the vessel that we used for trawling, and you know his network of um, of local people and, and and fishermen, you know, helped inform um, you know how we would sample and. Um, you know, and, and then that led into an interaction with some, um, some of the alewife harvesters that are in the area. And yeah, that, it's just so crucial because, you know, at, at the end of the day, we, you know, research wants to be able to feed the management, which is, you know, impacting, um, you know, the communities and, and the fishermen, the, the livelihoods in these different industries. So, you know, on, on one hand, it just makes total sense, right? That, that everyone would be involved through the whole cycle, but it's, it's just not that common from, you know, from what Chris is saying, like that's, that's just not how business is typically done. Um, but it, it really, you know, when it is done effectively, it just shows the power in, in bringing, you know, those folks together. Um, but, you know, as I'll say, you know, the challenge I think that we face in these fields is that there's um, there's still a, a general public that doesn't really know what might be right in front of them. Um, and I see this every day I'm in the field. I, I run from Hamden down below Bucksport. So I interface at people at the two boat ramps. And um, very rarely do I talk to people that, you know, understand that there are sea run fish in the water that are right, you know, right at their feet. You know, I'll say, oh, I'm looking at alewives and smelt and those kind of things. And they're like, oh, wow, like I didn't know those were here. And, you know, are there striped bass here? And are there mackerel here? And those kind of things, because there's also a, a, a um, you know, a long history of people negatively associating with the watersheds, the, the especially the Penobscot. It had a history of pollution and fish kills. And it really wasn't that long ago that, that the river 
um, you know, couldn't even sustain life for, for these fish. And um, I, I've run into people that said, you know, when I grew up, my parents wouldn't even let me swim in the river, you know, and then, you know, you see kids swimming at the boat ramps and, um, you know, birds eating fish and just, you know, the system is, is alive again. It seems like there's um, there's a wide spectrum in terms of public knowledge of the importance of our estuaries and and Justin, you're you're referring to to folks who who don't have a clear understanding of what we what resources we actually have, all the way to the other extreme, which is the folks who aren't necessarily scientists in the academic sense of the word, but who spend their entire livelihoods out there really. Um, and so they have a depth of knowledge that is based on on history and on experience and on time. And so they, they're intimately familiar with what's out there. And, and Chris, I know you've worked a fair bit with um, the Passamaquoddy tribe down your way. Can you share a little bit about some of your some of your work with the Passamaquoddy and and how um, how their knowledge and the traditional science knowledge can can when you combine them really kind of help us gain a better understanding of of what's happening in our ecosystems. Yes, thanks, Natalie. Uh, so I've had the uh, the pleasure to work with uh, members of the uh, Passamaquoddy Tribe's uh, environmental department at Savayak, uh, which is uh, a neighboring community to where I live in Eastport, and. Uh, working with, with uh, staff there to monitor both tom cod and uh, sea run uh, alewives and blueback herring. And learning that, you know, our, again, my approach using, you know, Western science is, is what I know best. And uh, learning that their approach of uh, cultural knowledge is, uh, is so important. Uh, to how they understand the ecosystem and uh, how we can then use their knowledge along with the, the science approach to answer the questions that we have together. So it's, it's really been uh, a joy to, to learn from them and uh, to do these studies together. So working in, in Pembroke, and now we're starting to look at working on a alewife, water, uh, alewife run in the town of Perry. Um, it's it's just great work. Thanks, Chris. And just to follow up in a, in a more general sense, um, are there opportunities for our listeners to get involved in some of the science projects that you all have been mentioning, and to help monitor sea run fish and contribute to the restoration of our watersheds? Tell us a little bit about that. I'll note that the Department of Marine Resources, in partnership with the Nature Conservancy, Downey Salmon Federation, and other organizations have a couple uh, citizen science projects going now on sea run fish that includes a, a rainbow smelt monitoring project that you can uh, sign up for, get, uh, they have online training each spring before the rainbow smelt. Uh, adult populations come to spawn in our freshwater streams and rivers. So much like an alewife, a rainbow smelt lives much of its life in salt water, comes to, um, to spawn in freshwater streams and rivers. And, Many people uh, will catch them at, when they're running up to those spawning habitats on high running uh, tides at night. So you can catch them with a dip net. So you can participate in that citizen science effort and contribute your knowledge to that database. And that has been extended now to uh, Atlantic tomcod, which is a really interesting species uh, that is much like a, a, it's in the family of groundfish, the gadids like cod and haddock but it spawns in freshwater uh, 
streams and rivers during uh, the cold months of December and January. So you can sign up to do that citizen science effort as well. So those are two new ones and I hope that there are going to be more. Um, one of the things that I wanted to mention too, that I like to engage uh, elementary schools and high schools in helping me collect uh, information on the projects uh, that I'm working on when I can. So I've been mentioning uh, alewife monitoring and previously I'd done rainbow smelt monitoring and bringing school groups to, uh, to, to my field site uh, to understand what questions I'm trying to answer and the methods that I'm using and asking the students to work alongside me to collect that information, uh, I think is, is really useful in um, getting them engaged and also uh, them sharing with me, uh, you know, their knowledge of the fisheries as well. And so Justin said that, uh, you know, sometimes we have, uh, some folks have mindsets that things either don't exist or uh, might not be uh, favorable to society. I find when we start with kids, uh, everything's positive. And they go back and share that with their family members. I had one uh, one friend who said that, you know, thank you for the field trip with my son. I've had to go back to the river five times this week. <laughs> so obviously I, I made a difference. And that young man uh, was really enthused in going down and, and learning more about uh, alewives and smelt. And, so that, that's just one, one thing that I like to do in engaging the public that I thought I'd share. That's really great, Chris. And I feel like you're you're helping us kind of wind down the hour um, with your, your message of positivity from working with kids. Um, I wanted to kind of wrap up because we are running out of time. So I wanted to wrap up by asking you um, to sort of reflect on the future, um, which I think Chris launched us really nicely with um, thinking about working with kids. But, you know, if you were to think five, 10 years down the line, um, what do you hope that your research has achieved in terms of um, either scientific results or public, public understanding or outreach or stewardship related to these estuary areas, this area that connects our freshwater and our coastal and marine systems? sort of a, a wide open question, sort of any closing thoughts you might have. I can start us off. Great. Um, I think what I'm just hoping to contribute to is just helping advance our understanding of the role that alewives and seals have in our ecosystem. They're so complicated and these relationships are so important. I think just adding a new way of investigating these relationships is really exciting and hopefully will help us take steps forward so we can help manage these species and understand what they're doing in our waters. And also Edenae is again, such an emerging, emerging tool and it's so brand new that hopefully the work that I am part of will help advance its use and help us implement it in new ways and help add it to the ways that we monitor fish populations to begin with and kind of help us round out our understanding a little bit. Yeah, and I also hope that my work advances our understanding of fisheries in Maine and also to plant seeds in people who may not have known that marine fisheries is really interesting and that this is something that they want to work on whether that and whether this happens through um, my work with outreach or it happens through my supporting citizen science programs I'm really interested to see what comes of it down the line. 
Yeah, I, I think along those same lines, I I really would like to see the um, continued evolution of of just fisheries management, embracing all of these different techniques from citizen science and um, and and local knowledge, um, these new technologies, and you know, it, I I envision it really improving, you know, the way that fisheries um, can be managed and. The environment in general, you know, can be managed by understanding how everything is just, you know, so connected. Um, but, you know, as Chris said, with the school children and, and just the engagement and the excitement that people, um, you know, get once they're exposed to this, I'm really, you know, hoping to just keep seeing, um, you know, the exponential uh, growth of, of that reach, um, you know, up into inland um, communities that maybe, you know, don't have direct access or maybe had some barrier in the past that they, you know, folks that just did not connect with the ocean. Um, you know, the, our state's coastline is, is so large, but, um, you know, there's, there's so many people that don't get down to it, you know, and didn't really understand it. So, you know, I, I think the, the steps towards building a, a bigger base of environmental stewards and, um, you know, marine uh, and, and marine stewards, you know, really is going to take engaging, you know, folks right from the top of, of Maine down, you know, to the coast. So that's where I'd like to, you know, see, see things progress, you know, over the next decade. I am so grateful to our guests on today's show about sea run fish and habitats that straddle fresh and salt water. It's been a fascinating conversation about research methods and the many different ways that we get information about our watersheds, from traditional ecological knowledge all the way to the newest technology like environmental DNA and everything in between. The person you were just hearing from was Justin Stevens, who heads up the Sea Run Fish Ecosystem Project, a partnership between Maine Sea Grant and NOAA Fisheries. You've also heard today from Julia Sonneborg, a UMaine PhD student in marine biology, working with the Maine Environmental DNA Program to assess shifts in coastal community structure and biodiversity throughout coastal Maine. Michelle de Leon is a master's student in ecology and environmental sciences at the University of Maine, who is exploring fish populations in Passamaquoddy Bay, a culturally important region along the Canadian border. And finally, you also heard from Chris Bartlett, a marine extension associate with Maine Sea Grant and Cooperative Extension, based in Eastport, where he's been working on all kinds of projects with school groups and Passamaquoddy tribal members at the intersection of fresh and salt water. Thanks to all of you. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Catch the latest episode of Coastal Conversations from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM or find past shows in the WERU.org Public Affairs Archives. You might also like to catch our sister program, Talk of the Towns with Ron Beard, on the second Wednesday of each month at 4 p.m. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Until next time, this is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend. <laughs>